This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, I am uh, I'm I'm obviously on a call here. I am out of the country, but we've got an incredible episode today. We've got Michael Geller. And I, I don't even know how to actually introduce Michael Geller. He wears so many hats. I would say start with past guest fan favorite. Right. He teaches at SFU. Right. He's an architect. He's a columnist. He is a prolific Twitter uh, user, and I would say, would you call it a public intellectual in Vancouver? It, you know, he seems to be a public intellectual for sure. He's like, also uh, a developer. He builds. He consults. He's he's very he's ran for office in the past. Michael Geller has basically done it all, and he's been in housing since like the seventies. Uh, he was involved in the South Falls Creek. CMHC builds of the early 70s. So if you're looking for somebody who knows this city very intimately and has the experience and the history on his side, today's guest is it, Michael Geller. I, I can't wait for this episode. But Adam, I, I haven't talked to you in because I don't know if it was obvious on the last episode. We recorded that before you left, but you've been right. already gone like two weeks. I think I've been gone two weeks. Yeah. You know, the story is I promised my wife after our first kid that if we had another, I would do a paternity leave. Right. So we're coming up on the end of her maternity leave. So now um, I'm, I'm on a little bit of a stint here where uh, I'm I'm away. I'm in Mexico currently. Right. Yeah. And can uh, you but, are you uh, are you comfortable to release where you are? Because I actually don't even know. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in Bucerias right now. Which I got to tell you is like boomer town. It's crazy. It's just all, it's like us and a bunch of boomers. Uh, you but it's have pretty texted awesome. me a couple of times and every time you're like, I met the mayor of Campbell River retired. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next one's like, I've met uh, the guy who opened these wine bars retired. Yeah. It seems yeah. like you're hanging out with a lot of 60 plus. I'm, I'm hanging out with a lot of guys who have been so successful throughout their life, but... <laughs> are uh, winding down, Matt, <laughs> not up. Uh, but no, some of the highlights, uh, no, obviously the highlights have been uh, spending time with my five, my three-year-old and my five-month-old. Of course. Uh, it's uh, It's been, we, we did a, a day at San Poncho, which is pretty awesome surf town. Yeah, actually, this is, this is from last night. I, I drank some really, really high-end uh, tequila, which I got to tell you, I'm not much of a tequila drinker, but I was with this guy who, who uh, is is a connoisseur and uh, anyway, also seventy five? So go on. Yeah, also seventy five, <laughs> and we're drinking we're drinking uh, this like really really nice uh, sipping tequila, and uh, he goes to me. Yeah, if he's like you can tell that you're drinking a high end tequila when you swirl your glass, and it will leave like a residue around around the glass. 
And so he goes, yeah, there, it's, uh, it's, we've got two names for it. Um, one name is tears and one name is legs. So it's either tears or legs. And so I swirl it around and he goes, what do you see? And I go, oh yeah, no, I can see the tears. And he goes, yeah, that's because you're married. Otherwise you'd see the legs. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. Very <laughs> Maybe a little boomer-esque. Yeah, uh, but, uh, yeah that's, that's a joke from the <laughs> early 70s. Uh, the other thing I just wanted to bring up was you were in a restaurant. This was like six, seven days ago. And I don't know how many people will be familiar with the Buena Vista Social Club. Um, right. Well, Define the right late 90s for me. This was yeah. uh, <laughs> this was a very important band out of Cuba. But the but so, well, tell the story. Well, no, I mean, I most people, if you've ever worked in a restaurant or ate in a restaurant, you've probably heard Buena Vista Social Club because I feel like that's like the background music in, uh, yeah, in a lot of... La the, uh, any Latin, yeah. Anyways, but there's a great documentary, the Ry Cooter documentary on it. It's, anyways, it's worth checking out. But we, uh, we, were at, uh, we were in line at a restaurant, like a pizza place, basically, that's actually quite nice. And we had our friends in from Guadalajara and uh, somebody was talking about Buena Vista Social Club. And so I just assumed that there was a cover band doing doing like Buena Vista Social Club songs, which would have been awesome enough. Yeah. But it turns out that the uh, former lead singer was in the crowd and uh, got up and did two songs. He did, uh, trying to remember now. But anyways, two songs off the album. It was incredible. Dos Gardenia and uh, the other one was like the first song off the album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was, uh, it was like, yeah, pretty, pretty spectacular, pretty special. And uh, yeah, he's like, I don't know, he's a really old guy. I was going to say, because uh, in the 90s, I feel like this was in the late 90s, maybe early 2000s when that was like, you know, something that I was paying attention to. It was like the story was Ry Cooter went to Cuba and found right. all these old kind of like pre- revolution singers was my understanding of it uh that were super old and he kind of saved this and recorded this music that you know w wasn't being recorded very often but that guy must be like a thousand now it was it's kind of crazy i uh i took some some videos i think i sent you one but it's yeah like super old guy incredible voice like and then all, all the all the the horn player and uh you know really amazing percussionists and yeah no it was like uh, I feel like that will be a story I'm telling, uh, you know, 30 years from now kind of thing. And speaking of things I'll be talking uh, about 30 years from now, this uh, this interview with Michael Geller. This was great. Michael came into the studio right before you left. And like I said, it's always, it's just a wealth of knowledge. The other exciting thing about Michael Geller is we've talked to a lot of Yes in My Backyard folks over the last year, especially leading up to the election this year. Michael has a, a different take than a lot of people that have been on this show. We talk politics, we talk housing policy, we talk developing in these challenging times. Uh, this is just an all-around great episode about, about Vancouver, so, so everyone should tune in and enjoy. Yeah, this is a great one. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the lower mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Berquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. 
This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one-beds to three-beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Okay, so we're here with Michael Geller. He is a developer, architect, planner, adjunct professor at SFU, a journalist, and I, I could go on and on and on, but... Failed uh, politician. Failed politician. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the first well, loser on behalf of the MPA in 2008. This is, of, of the many successes, one failure. I was going to say, can, most could... people pump their successes. <laughs> <laughs> and we were joking, but member of uh, one of the, the most interesting book clubs... Uh, that we've ever talked about on the show and past guest fan favorite. We've had so many uh, people reach out from your last appearance, which was early 2020, right? Like, right. right was it right before COVID? I'm trying to remember if it, it was, was March. March. Literally, it came out in March, right? So was I it before it was. COVID hit or? It was in the studio. We yeah. were we were together. So it was definitely before. It was before the NHL uh, it was shut down. It was before we were all wiping down grocery bags, I think, is, is really. Uh, but welcome back, Michael. Thank and Thank thanks you. for taking the time today. We know you're so busy. So, so Michael, for those who weren't uh, listening to the show then or need a refresher, can you maybe, and apart from all the things Adam mentioned, can you maybe start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself? When I was uh, four years old, my parents bought me a Baco set. And that was the English version of mini bricks. And I started building little houses at the age of four. And uh, my uncle was upset about this because he wanted me to be a dentist. And so at the age of 10, he bought me a dentistry set. And when I applied to University of Toronto, my first choice was architecture. My second choice was dentistry. My wife says I was fortunate to get into architecture because she knows I occasionally faint at the sight of blood. <laughs> <laughs> so I did study architecture. I worked as an architect in Toronto for a very innovative housing firm. But I'd won a CMHC traveling scholarship during my uh, student days and uh, ended up leaving architecture and joining architecture in the public sector at CMHC. And I worked there for 10 years. Right. And this was you, you had a hand in, as I recall, the Southeast False Creek plan through CMHC. Yeah, actually the South Shore False Creek, the portion adjacent to Granville oh, Island. Oh, sorry, yes. So, yeah. Southeast False Creek, which is the Olympic Village, came later. But South Shore False Creek was highly innovative in its day. Mayor Art Phillips had proposed the idea, since it was public land, it would be one-third low income, one-third mi middle, and one-third high. He also wanted to reduce reliance on the private automobile. One of the innovations was we, all the residents subsidized BC Transit 
so that bus service could be in place the first day the first resident moved in. And that's an idea that I think has application throughout the province today. You mentioned, you know, building houses out of Lego, essentially, as, as, a, as, a, as a child. What attracted you, apart from actually the, I guess, building the structures, what, what attracted you to real estate? I grew up in the Jewish portion of Toronto. And I would walk down the street to the synagogue on Saturday mornings with my father past all the high-rise apartment buildings going up. And uh, I was just fascinated by it, both from a design point of view and from a development point of view. And indeed, uh, development in real estate was very much a part of the culture. I mean, the standard greeting was, Bernie, I haven't seen you since high school. What are you doing? He says, I became a furrier. You're a furrier? Where are you building? (laughs) And that's a little bit today, too, with certain ethnic groups in Vancouver. (laughs) Everybody's either building or buying or selling real estate. Well, it's funny. We always say it's like a sport here. It's hard to imagine actually not being involved in some way in Vancouver in real estate. It's just, yeah, it's like a a city pastime. But I often tell people that I'm proud of my association with the public sector Indeed, I always remember one gentleman, I was approving or reviewing his plans and I was suggesting some changes. And at one point he said to me, Mr. Geller, you're so young. If you think you're so smart, why are you working for the government? I said, Mr. Fernandez, I'm 27 years old. I'm in charge of the redevelopment of the South Shore of Falls Creek for CMHC. That's why I'm working for the government. (laughs) So how how did you? Because I mean, it, you've you've had a lot of uh, different roles that you've played. A lot of them related or, or um, related, obviously, to to real estate. So out of CMHC, what what prompted the change of career? I think I'd always wanted to be in the private sector as a developer, and uh, an opportunity came about. Initially, I was going to transition out of CMHC. I had done a lot of waterfront redevelopment projects in Toronto, Toronto Harbourfront, Montreal, Quebec City, Market Square in St. John, New Brunswick. And I was invited to submit my credentials to become vice president of BC Place when the redevelopment of the North Shore Falls Creek was getting underway. And uh, that position went to David Podmore, who uh, a gentleman I admire greatly. I became president of Concert Properties, chairman of Concert, a very, very good developer because he's publicly spirited and has had an incredible. If you haven't had him on the show, you should. He's a brilliant we, guy. We haven't actually. That's an omission. The Pod- email's going out this afternoon. <laughs> Podmore and I were once subject of a Vancouver Sun article titled The D Word. And it was about developers. And I was proud to be associated with Podmore because he was a real developer. I've, I've always been. The developers think of me as a planner and the planners think of me as a developer. But the truth is, uh, I love the fact that I do a bit of both. So, Michael, you're consulting. We were talking before the show. So you're, you have one of your own developments under development, I guess, right now. Under the approval process. Under the approval process, which we, we got to talk about. But you also are consulting on various, on various projects. We've been asking a lot of people this lately, but does this current economic moment remind you, and you have obviously a, a long and kind of storied career, does this economic moment remind you of any other moment that you can remember? It's a very mild version of what I witnessed from 1981 through to 1983, 84. In 1981, the real estate market in Vancouver was flying. 
The developers were making a lot of money. We were drinking very expensive wines. And by 1983, interest rates had risen quite significantly, just by perspective, up to 18%. Right. 18%. And, uh, and that slowed everything down. House prices dropped dramatically, in some cases 40 50%. And in some cases, a house was selling in 83 for half of what it was selling for at the beginning of 81. Now, I'm not suggesting that's happening now, but I did read this morning how the percentage of sales is down is about half of what it was last year this month. And there's no doubt that the increased interest rates are having an impact on housing activity. You see it even more closely. I am aware that a lot of developments have been put on hold, uh, both condominium projects but also a lot of rental projects because the increase in interest rates and construction costs is making a lot of those projects that looked so attractive two years ago uh, unattractive today. Mm -hmm. And when you say mild, uh, is it in your analysis, is that a product of, you know, that we're maybe peaking out at 5% or or 6% potentially as opposed to 18% or do you see this as, kind of a much more shallow recession if we get there? I mean, I don't want to pretend that I know what's going to happen to interest rates. All I can tell you is that I boasted on Twitter that I helped my daughter secure a five-year committed mortgage at 1.99%. And people even questioned, why would I do that? Why not stick with a variable rate? And it, all I thought was because they, they didn't live through 1981 to 83. I mean, when I grew up in the 50s and 60s, seven or eight percent was considered an extremely attractive rate. Right. And so you have to look at it from that perspective. I don't really know what's going to happen, but the one thing that we do know is a lot more people are moving to Canada, a lot more people are moving to British Columbia, so the demand is there, mm -hmm. and it is going to be just a question of figuring out how best to match supply and demand. I'm thinking about su supply specifically, and one of the things that you had mentioned is a lot of developments are going to be paused, and and that's what we've been talking about a lot with uh, people in the development community. How do you think this is going to impact um, with the interest rate uh, environment and the fact that there'll be a lot of projects that don't move forward? What do you think the long and short-term effects are on affordability in the region? We're never going to be as affordable as Winnipeg. We know that firsthand. <laughs> we, we grew up there. <laughs> we'll never be as affordable as Winnipeg. And the problem is the cost of land, the cost of construction, the interest rates are such that it's very hard to produce housing for those of more modest incomes. I mean, that is the reality. And I've been having a debate on Twitter and Facebook with Patrick Condon, who I admire. He's a planner and he's been very innovative. But he keeps thinking that if only we increase community amenity charges so that we could reduce the cost of land, we could create more affordable housing. And it's simply not true. In fact, I just sent him a note this week saying, even if land is free, you cannot create housing that's affordable to most of the people listening to this podcast, mm -hmm. even if there's no land cost. And that's because just the costs of the municipal fees, the interest costs, insurance costs, architects and other fees, and construction 
are such that it's going to be a thousand dollars a foot. And that's unfortunate. But that what that means is in order to house those people who really can't afford a thousand dollars a foot, you then have to look at government subsidies, you have to look at more creative approaches. And 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 eventually, I mean, eventually there's no increasing supply definitely helps, but I don't think any of us believe that in itself is the answer. You know, just thinking about, and we've been talking a lot about this um, on the show as well, but just I put it to you, Michael, the cost of construction, as you know, inflation, supply chain, all that cost of building is, is going up and prices, at least right now, seem to be coming down. Yes. How does this play out in the short term? Because uh, it seems like in the long term, you know, hard assets, inflation, uh, I think everybody knows how this plays out. But but how do those interact in, say, the next one to three years in, in your mind? Well, if Boza and Bogner and West Group and all of the developers who've generally been pretty active suddenly start putting their projects on hold, then as you correctly know, construction costs do start to come down because the contractors now are a little hungrier. Now, in order to do that, of course, uh, they have to work out arrangements with staff, uh, with their workers. You have to hope that the cost of uh, certain construction materials comes down. But the other problem is a lot of these costs are global. I mean, Mm -hmm. it seems hard to believe that the war in the Ukraine impacts the cost of construction in Vancouver, but I'm told by people it does because it impacts where steel goes, where, where, what materials are available and so forth. So that is a reality that has to be dealt with as well. You know, just, just thinking in, in, I, I, again, in that, that vein, Michael, so some of the supply chain issues and the costs are global, as you noted. I'm just thinking back to, okay, this moment reminds you of the early 80s, right? Which, of course, is pre-Expo 86. You know, we don't talk as much uh, now as we did, say, five years ago about Vancouver being either an emerging global city or a global city. But I I think that probably still uh, is a relevant term in that Vancouver's place on on the global scale has totally changed. Uh, since the early 80s. I'm just thinking about downturns and the idea that, you know, prices dropped almost 50% then. Do you think that's still possible in today's market, especially with immigration levels, that type of thing? No, I don't think we will see prices dropping by 50%. And by the way, we shouldn't ignore the fact there have been other downturns as well. In the early 90s, there was a downturn. 2008 was a terrible year for a lot of people. A lot of developers went broke. Uh, We all know the story about Southeast Falls Creek, the Olympic Village, and that saga, which fortunately has that recovered, as most of us thought it would. So there, there have been other incidents where costs go up and they go down. But I re- always remember when I was a student at the University of Toronto, hitchhiking to school one day, and a gentleman picked me up and he said, I'll give you a ride, but I have to make a couple of stops. And I realized he was stopping to pick up rent checks. And he asked me, where, so where are you living? I told him where I lived. He said, are you, do you own? I said, what do you mean, do I own? Of course I don't own, I rent. He said, buy as soon as you can. And don't worry about paying too much because over the long term, it won't matter. And uh, that's always stuck with me. It's advice I've given a lot of younger people. 
The fact is prices do go up and they do go down. I help my two daughters buy homes. Probably when the market was higher than it had been a year earlier and maybe even higher than it is today. But over the longer term, it doesn't matter, especially if it's your personal residence, because that's that's important. Don't think of your personal residence just in terms of an investment and so forth. Sure, you have to worry about whether you can refinance it if interest rates go up. But overall, over the long term, prices do go up. I'm in the process of writing out some thoughts based on the 50 years I've been at this business, looking at newspaper clippings from the 70s, talking about the housing crisis in Vancouver. So the fact is, 81 to 83 was an important period, but there were quite a few books written in the 70s about what are we going to do about the outrageously high cost of housing in Vancouver. If only at a time machine. We were talking before we went live, Michael, about you know, a little bit about the the municipal elections we just had. And specifically, it sounds like what's on your mind right now is the process of getting applications approved in the various municipalities and how challenging that is. Just in the context of, you know, you've been at this 50 years, there's been a housing crisis since, is, and and in the context of, I should say, Kennedy Stewart, you know, talking about, I'm going to build, you know, however hundreds of thousands of homes, you know, pie in the sky type stuff versus Ken Sim who had a, we're doing three days on, you know, housing permits for renovations. What, what in your mind is, is that like the uh, kind of nuts and bolts thing that we can actually grab onto and improve housing affordability in, in some meaningful way? I was invited by one of the television networks to participate again in their election night coverage. It was quite a thrill to be in the studio and watching all the election results coming in and so forth. And at one point near the end of the show, they interviewed Colleen Hardwick and asked her about Ken Sims' promise to speed up the approval process. And she said, no, he's not going to do it. And I said to the reporter, Uh, who was interviewing me, the approval process in Vancouver is so bad, it's impossible not to improve it. (laughs) (laughs) And I meant that sincerely. And indeed, I prompted me to put a blog post up on different ways that I thought Ken Sim really can improve it. Now, I won't pretend that he'll be able to get it down to three days, three weeks, three months, but he certainly will be able to improve it because there are lots of ways of of doing it. I just drove here today down Canby Street, and anyone's been along Canby Street, it's quite impressive to see all those little bungalows that have been replaced by six-story buildings. And some of them, I think, are really lovely, and some of them are just bulky and not particularly beautiful, but overall, I think it looks fine. But the point is, the city did an overall plan for that street. They did design guidelines for each section of the street. And then every one of those buildings went through a lengthy and expensive rezoning process. And it's nuts because at the end of the day, some of them are still rather bulky and not particularly (laughs) beautiful. And they went through the same process. And so that's something that I think we need to really focus on. The fact is you don't need to have so many rezonings. The other thing is you don't need such a complex review process. You need to rethink the role of the urban design panels because I've served on the urban design panel in Vancouver twice 
And I know that oftentimes you can you get very personal in terms of saying, you know, I'm not sure I really like that. Have you considered vertical windows rather than horizontal windows? Well, the planner was encouraging us to go from vertical windows to horizontal windows. Right. Well, I think you should reconsider that. And that's the kind of thing any of the architects and planners listening to us right now, and even some of the municipal planners will say, you know, it sounds absurd, but he's right. That's the kind of thing that goes on. And so there are ways that we can definitely improve the process. Is it, Just thinking about the city of Vancouver, you know, one thing that sticks out, I was just talking to an electrician and he said, oh yeah, I can have a permit for you in five, six days. I said, oh, great. And he said, well, in Port Coquitlam, I can have it in five minutes. Yeah. So what is it about the city of Vancouver? Is it, is it well, maybe I'll just put it to you because yeah. the city of Every municipality has its challenges. The city of Vancouver seems to be particularly gummed up in a way um, that's kind of monumental. So think of your own personal workload. So right now, if I asked you to do something, it might only take you an hour to write up the listing, but it'll take you three days to get around to doing it. And I think that's an analogy for what's going on, that there's such a backup of backlog of, of applications because the staff have to go through a certain process that it takes quite a long time for them to get to it. I was thinking this morning, I, I sent a note off early this morning to some planners at the city of Vancouver. If that was a note to another private developer, probably within a, an hour or by the end of today, I would get a note back saying, Mike, thanks for your suggestions. Let me take a look at this and I'll get back to you. I actually don't even think I'll ever get an acknowledgement from the city planners. And that's what others have said to me. I'm, I'm going through that as well, where you shoot off and you're like, I don't even know if that's reaching them. Like, the only, they way, just I, don't the even only way I can sometimes accelerate or increase the likelihood of getting that acknowledgement is to copy a couple of the city councillors on the email, not blind copy, but CC. And that sometimes works, but in my case, it doesn't always work, which is why I only have very limited activity in the city of Vancouver. But uh, no, I think we. I think that there's a lot of very, very good staff there, and I think I think there will be some some changes. Kay Krishna used to be a planner at the city, a senior person, and she came up with the idea that we should have the equivalent of a nexus lane. For those architects, planners, and developers who've demonstrated that they're honest and they do a good job and they don't screw up. So why should they go through exactly the same lengthy process that those people who need a tremendous amount of hand-holding and who you're not entirely sure will follow through on their promises anyway? And I actually think that's an excellent idea. And I'm encouraging the city of Vancouver and other municipalities to think about establishing the equivalent of a nexus lane for their applications. Yeah, we've talked about that. I think that's a, a great idea. Um, in kind of going back to the election, I, I'm curious, did, did you think that Ken Sim and a, a better city was a win for, for Vancouver? Yes, I think so. There's no doubt that uh, I, I know Kennedy Stewart from SFU. He was a colleague. He's a decent guy, but he just wasn't the kind of leader the inspirational leader that so many of us were looking for. And for whatever reason, so many things got worse rather than better. And certainly, I believe that the situation in the downtown east side was one of the things that was his downfall. 
They should never, the city should never have allowed the situation to deteriorate to the extent it has. And I suspect most of the people who are listening to us have heard about it and read about it, but never actually went along Hastings Street. But if you did, or the streets around Hastings Street, or increasingly now other streets, you have to be both distraught and appalled and also feeling so terribly sorry. I mean, the rain in the last few nights. I've been, I mean, the I wind. sit in a very comfortable yeah. house. I can't help but think what it must be like for a lot of the people who are in these tents or hiding under cardboard somewhere trying to deal with this. Now, that's another interesting thing. I think the last time I was on the show, I mentioned that when I was at university, I did as my thesis the idea of setting up modular housing on vacant land the way schools set up class, portable classrooms, and then when they no longer need them, they move them somewhere else. And I suggested to this, I did as my thesis in 71, that idea, when I ran for city council in 2008, I said one way to address homelessness would be to set up these modular units on vacant land. And it took a long time because I was running for the MPA and Gregor Robertson ran for vision. He didn't want to use a quote, an MPA idea. But finally, they did use that idea, and it's worked, although they're very expensive the way they're doing it. But there are other ways we could create more modest accommodation just to get people off the street. I was driving out to the valley the other week and passed a lot of these uh, lots selling RV vehicles. There's so many RV vehicles. You know, at a certain point, you begin to think, well, maybe the government should just buy a few hundred or thousand RV vehicles that aren't selling because of the price of gas and set them up somewhere, connect them to some form of sewer or uh, system, and uh, at least use them. And if you go over the Lionsgate Bridge and you look down on the uh, north end, on the west side, there's a trailer park there, and people live there all year round. So that would be better. My, my point is that may not be exactly the right answer, but the point is we do need to come up with some more creative answers because the... The irony, the sad irony, is even building social housing takes longer sometimes than to build market condos. Mm-hmm. Mm. Wait, is that the biggest challenge facing the city? Do you think the downtown east side, or what is the what is the biggest challenge facing Vancouver right now? Well, it's like asking me which of my daughters do I like the best. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on that's the day. A, that's the next question. <laughs> I think, uh, I think the situation in the downtown east side, the drug addiction, the mental illness, it is a problem. And the reason why I think it may be a bigger problem than many of us think is because it does lead to a lot of crime. And there's nothing worse, I think, than f- worrying about your personal safety. Last Friday, I was at a white spot in Richmond and I came out. And uh, I have a Tesla that sometimes locks automatically and sometimes it doesn't. And sure enough, while I was having coffee and a late uh, brunch, somebody stole the golf clubs out of my car in a parking lot in the middle of Richmond. And I believe that that is somehow related to the people are so desperate in this city. But when your personal security becomes threatened, that's serious. A lot of people I know are indeed moving out of single-family houses into condominiums for the enhanced security. And what I worry about 
is whether we'll ever get to be like some of the South American cities. Mm -hmm. If you've ever been to Sao Paulo and places, I mean, their personal security gets to the point that people actually have armed guards, right? Super, you know, providing security for walled in gated communities. Now, somebody's going to say, Christ, Geller, why are you raising something like this? Because these things happen incrementally. Mm-hmm. I mean, right now on Burrard Street outside St. Paul's Hospital, there's five tents. I know because I counted them over the weekend. Now, do we wait until there's 25 tents before we start to do uh, deal with that situation? Or do we try and find what I actually did lament that fact. And one of my neighbors who works at St. Paul's, he was living under cardboard. And I said to her, look, I'll pay for a tent if that's what he needs, provided he puts it somewhere else. I think it's wrong for it to be on the sidewalk and for, on Burrard Street in front of St. Paul's. But, you know, what's happened is we've become almost immune to this. You watch people walk by all the time and uh, people lying in uh, the intersection of Granville and Georgia. And we kind of just begin to accept it more and more. I can remember the very first time I saw people sleeping in sleeping bags on the street. And it was in San Francisco about 30 years ago. And so to answer your question, I obviously feel quite passionately that we have to come up with some solutions for that. But the other problem I see, which is a real problem, and it applies more to the people listening to us, is that so many people cannot afford to live in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And they certainly can't afford to live in Vancouver and have children. And that really troubles me. Although I was always going to be a bachelor all my life, it bothers me when I hear couples making decisions whether or not to have children based on whether or not they can afford suitable accommodation. And to those people, by the way, I say you should move to Trail or Nanaimo or somewhere else and start a new life and have children. Mm -hmm. And if my daughters are listening to me now, they'd say, Dad, that's, you've never ever said that before. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is, but you know what? I think it was Rob Carrick. Somebody in the Globe and Mail just put uh, put an article in the last two days. Um, I was thinking this is a new, a new angle uh, because we once had somebody on the podcast say the most expensive house you'll ever buy is in Flin Flon, Manitoba. And I think his point was the opportunity costs of actually living in Flin Flon. Whereas now it seems like the narrative has shifted where I think in the Globe and Mail, they were saying, if you're a young person in Toronto and Vancouver, you should think of leaving yeah. for, your, for your own financial security moving forward. I hate to say it, but in a way, I subscribe to that, and I've written about it. I remember a number of years ago, I was working in St. John, New Brunswick, and McLean's had done a poll of the 23 most livable cities in Canada at the time, and St. John, New Brunswick was 23rd the least livable city on that list. But having worked there over on and off for over the course of a year, there was a very good quality of life for the people who lived there and the cost of housing and the cost of living was significantly less than the cost of living in Toronto or Ottawa. And so I do think that while I'm happy to spend the next hour giving younger people ideas on how to get into housing includes things like sharing, home sharing, getting, don't even think about owning a car if you're saving money to buy a house. Just take a, compare what happens to a $40,000 car over 10 years and what happens to that same $40,000 if you put it into a home, then you'll never own that car. But the point is, 
at some point, people should consider whether or not they can afford to live here and suffer or go. And those ads we've heard recently about people moving to Alberta, I think they can be quite enticing. (laughs) Yeah. No, honestly, I I think Calgary looks pretty attractive. Especially if they can get rid of that ridiculous premier, that awful premier (laughs) they've got, but she'll be gone soon. (laughs) Hey, everyone. Pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer. And they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. So Michael, I just want to go back because we we talked a little bit about the election and and I think uh, what's going on in say the downtown east side or what's going on with the increase of random attacks and crime throughout the city. I think that was very central to a lo- how a lot of people voted this past election. Can we talk a, a little bit maybe about about that, but also about what's going on in other municipalities throughout the Lower Mainland? Actually, that's a good point because. The problems that we witness in the downtown east side are not restricted to the downtown east side. Indeed, if you go to Surrey, there's some areas in Surrey that are equally distressing where there's a significant homelessness problem. In Maple Ridge, it was a major issue over the course of the last couple of years. And in other municipalities, people are really struggling with, because the fact is compared to the climate in the rest of Canada, whether you're in Maple Ridge or Vancouver or Port Coquitlam, it's a lot more comfortable here than it is there. But I think it is also worthwhile to look at some of these other municipalities. Uh, I belong to a discussion group, and one day somebody came and gave a talk about what was happening with the high-tech industry and how it was growing in Vancouver. But one of the concerns, she said, was housing costs for many of the companies. And I told her I'd read how in San Francisco they have Google buses 
that actually go to certain suburban locations and pick up employees who bring them into the Google headquarters. And she said, we have that here too. I said, really? Where does the Google bus come from? (laughs) (laughs) And she said, Port Moody. Okay. Because Port Moody is a municipality where I've worked over the years, which has a certain sophistication and an attractiveness. Now, a lot of our your listeners don't know Port Moody, but Newport Village, across from City Hall, it's a city of the arts, culture. Port Moody is a very, very attractive place. And, uh, and so a lot of people who couldn't afford Yale Town chose to live in Port Moody. And I see that happening. Years and years ago, I used to always tell people to move to the city of North Vancouver because I always thought that Lonsdale, Lonsdale Key area was, was very, very attractive, having worked on Granville Island at one time. My daughter moved to New Westminster. I mean, New Westminster is a very vibrant community. The point is there are a number of att- very attractive places in Metro, and you can go further. I, I was with some people who are living in Abbotsford. I mean, you, people say Abbotsford, Chilliwack. I mean, too far. But but the reality is that you can begin to have a pretty nice quality of life. Uh, You mentioned I'm working at Furry Creek. Mm. Squamish, when I did my first project in 1989, I took a million dollars and my wife and we went up to Squamish to buy property because I was convinced that Squamish was the future. And the only reason I saw that is because I grew up in Toronto and saw how people went further and further afield in order to eventually buy housing. And now Squamish is so expensive for many people that they're moving up to Pemberton. Right. And if I was a lot younger and you asked me, where are you going to invest your money, Geller? I'd say Lillooet. And people would say, well, God, it's a long way away. And it is a long way away. But there's another community that, in a way, I think will transition over time. Hmm. When I was in Lillooet uh, two years ago, somebody said, whatever you do, don't forget to go to the winery. I said, there's a winery in Lillooet? (laughs) There's a very interesting winery in Lillooet. And I met a young lady who was serving us. And I said to her, did you grow up here? And she said, no, I grew up in Burnaby. She said, you know... It's interesting. There was a time when kids would grow up in the small town and they'd move to the big city, and now it's reversed. Right. And I thought that's a very interesting article. So I wrote an article for the Vancouver Sun's design magazine on Lillooet as a place to, to, to look. And there's a lot of other communities throughout British Columbia. You can still come into Vancouver if you want to. But a lot of the people that I speak to who live in many of these other municipalities, they actually don't come into downtown Vancouver after a while because they find it too congested. They find people steal their bike. They break into their car. Right. So it's kind of interesting. And I think, I think it's important to talk about these things. Well, we, we love Port Moody and we love New West and we've talked about them a lot on the program, it's especially Port Moody. I feel like Port Moody has overtaken a lot of our the yeah. areas we we often talk about. It's such a great... I've never actually heard of it put as just there's a sophistication there because it's hard to put your finger exactly on why if you're, say, considering North Van but maybe priced out, Port Moody's the next obvious choice. And I think that kind of captures it. I'll say that one of the things that I like to do now is on a weekend take a sort of Sunday drive. I do drive. I'm scared to cycle. 
But I drive and I go out and I visit different communities. Most of the people are listening to us right now don't know there's a fabulous Greek restaurant in downtown Ladner. But there is. And indeed, there's fabulous Greek restaurants and other restaurants in Fort Langley and in Coquitlam and throughout the lower mainland and even slightly further afield. We sometimes get it in our mind that the world revolves around Commercial Drive and Main Street. And right. those are, right now, those are very, very prime places for a lot of people. A lot of people that would have bought in Kitsilano 20 years ago, they, they, they're not interested they're in They're going Kitsilano. to the drive. They're going to the drive. <laughs> but there are other communities, I think, uh, that offer similar amenities. And and you just have to look. Somebody once said, if you want to know what's a walkable neighborhood, take a look and see how many Starbucks there are. Well, what I often now do is look at some of the other restaurant chains, uh, Brown's, uh, Social, you know, the, where they're opening up because it gives you a clue as to how the population, the demographics are changing. Absolutely. And there's a lot of our li listeners out there right now Googling Lillooet real estate, I think. Uh, <laughs> well, you can buy a very nice house for about $400,000. Wow. One thing, and this is more, you know, uh, pie in the sky or high theoretical, just thinking about kind of the shifts that we've undergone in the last couple of years. And it's just kind of come to me because I, when I was talking before about you know, Vancouver is a global city and, and, you know, all these things we used to talk about, we don't talk about as much and COVID pushing people out. And, and you're mentioning, you know, used to be people from small towns moved to the city. Now people from the city are moving to small towns. Like there does feel like there's kind of a, a shift happening. Do you, do you see that shift away from urban centers? Like are cities becoming less important because I think like Gil Kelly, who doesn't work at, the, isn't the chief city planner anymore. And that was maybe 2018, 2019. He was saying, you know, the city, the, the city is, is the most important to, to think about. And it's going to continue that way. But it does feel like we're moving kind of in this direction, almost in anti-globalization in a way, but an anti-city like Vancouver. Do you see that? And this is me thinking out loud, literally, as I am. Speaking into this microphone. Like a pushback against the city? Yeah. Well, there's a, a wonderful blog. Brandon Donnelly is a Toronto architectural student turned developer in Toronto. And he is a great supporter of urban life and has been defending urban life, going to the office and so forth. And he does it very eloquently. And he's well worth checking out Brandon Donnelly. But the reason I mention this is because I think there are, there is a significant percentage of people who do believe that living in the city, working in the city, going to the theater in the city, that's really the only way to go. But I do think that there's an increasing number of people who say, yes, I want to have a certain urbane existence, but I don't have to have it in downtown Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And uh, a number of years ago, a friend of mine became the mayor of Trail, and I got invited to Trail. And I had worked there many, many years ago with CMHC. And Trail has a pretty pejorative image. I mean, the hockey team was the Trail smoke heaters. <laughs> <laughs> but the point was, after spending a weekend in Trail, and I wrote a column about it in the Vancouver Sun, and it's probably online, 
I thought this really is a fabulous community. Right. Yes, it's had a smelter, it's got a history of mining and so forth. But now the mining and recycling is starting to change. And on Saturday mornings, there's a theater and the theater brings in opera from New York City. And I met a lot of very interesting people who'd moved to trail from Vancouver and from other places to start new lives. They cared about the look of the community. They were participating in something called the sort of Bloom Festival where you compete to see how beautiful you can make your neighborhood. And I must confess that really was a very attractive, especially when I returned to Vancouver and see how we're allowing all of our grass areas to become meadows and weeds. I mean, I have to go to Richmond to enjoy a beautifully landscaped boulevard or median down the street because that wasn't consistent with the thinking of a lot of people in Vancouver. So my daughter, one of my other daughters, one's in New West, the other one moved to Victoria. And I spent a lot of time in Victoria. Well, Victoria and other parts of Vancouver Island are fabulous. Now, downtown Victoria has become extremely urbane, but it's sort of like Vancouver was a little while ago. There's homelessness. You see a lot of, there was no doubts, crime and, and so forth there too. But it does offer an alternative. And I, I spend time in the Okanagan. I was in Kelowna and Penticton over the summer. There's two more communities that are gently growing and providing another alternative. Mm -hmm. So here we are. I'm here on a real estate podcast. You guys are trying to sell property in Vancouver. <laughs> and I'm telling your listeners to go and consider other places. You know, I'm just thinking, uh, somebody sent along uh, the BC Craft Beer Awards that took place over the last weekend. And I think Courtney, BC, yeah. was the winner in a number. But the fact that some of the best beer in BC is being brewed in at some microbrewery in, in Courtney, you know, s suggests the same. Like it's each one of these communities seems to be growing into ha having a moment, I guess, um, where you could imagine... There's younger people moving there, and the communities are kind of thriving. I, I should clarify, Matt ranks everything by where the best beer is. <laughs> well, <laughs> so, yeah, Brown Social House is one. And <laughs> but it's interesting. Uh, on the weekend, last weekend, I was in Victoria, and my son-in-law asked me, uh, did I want a whiskey? I said, no, I like beer. We were, going to have, uh, we, were, we were going to have food that went well with beer. And he kind of apologized. Because all he had were these exotic craft beers, sours, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. green beer made yeah. from kale, and all <laughs> Vancouver Island. Right. And uh, I said, no, I'll try them. And indeed, uh, it, it was very, very interesting. But I think, I think it is a metaphor for the, the way our attitude. In fact, whiskey, I mean, I bought some whiskey. Scotch whiskey made on Vancouver Island. There's a distillery near right. Sydney where it makes wonderful gin. And so the world is definitely changing. Actually, and as the, just to think of that metaphor, it used to be East Van was where you went for, for craft beer, and now Courtney's taking the awards. So oh, there you well, go. Yeah, and, but and by Port the way, yeah. while we're on the topic of craft breweries, there's a very important idea I'd like to throw out, and that is, when people say to me, well, where should we be building more affordable housing? One of the things I say, we should be integrating housing with light industrial uses. And what prompted that was my daughters did take me on a craft brewery pub crawl for my birthday a couple of years ago. 
And as I sat in these places in Mount Pleasant, think, why isn't there housing above? Right. There was a time we always separated housing from industry because industry was noxious. Well, you look at what constitutes industry right. today, and indeed, I am now about to work on a project in Vancouver where I'm going to be pitching the idea of not reducing the amount of industrial-type development, but allowing the integration of residential with it. Because to my mind, that makes great sense, and it's one way to avoid the incredible high cost of land that's currently zoned for residential. Right. Now, the prices will still go up over time, but there's capacity in parts of our city. False Creek Flat certainly comes say, to mind. That, that seems and like so the spot. Th so that's an area that I'm looking at. You could begin to create workforce housing. You can begin to create housing associated with the hospital. It makes a lot of sense. You've got wonderful transit. But for years, people like Brent Totteron and others opposed the integration of housing with light industry because they said it'll raise the value of the land to the point that industry won't want to locate there. And it's not, it's not true. Oh, my, my favorite, my favorite areas in the city, I can think of like all of parts of mostly in East Vancouver, but where we are right now, Mount Pleasant West, it's, it's tough to find places over here, but it's got that, you know, the industrial, the, um, the industrial zoning, uh, you think about over the, where the breweries are, the Clark and say like Clark and Georgia or Clark and Adenac, for yeah. example, that's that is the challenge. Is is really it's there's a lot of single family. There's you know Strathcona or, like this, or this False Creek Flats by Emily Carr that area where it's just all industrial. That seems like such a good idea. The other thing is go around Richmond and look at all these one and two story buildings. Every time I see these buildings, all I want to do is put modular housing on the rooftops. <laughs> and when I talk about this, my friend Frank Schlowinski, who at one time was one of the smartest real estate guys in the city, sent me a text from Malaysia or somewhere wherever he's living to say, Geller, take a look at the top floor parkades. Nobody ever parks up there. And it's true. Everybody should look down at parkades. I'm willing to bet there's very few parkades where people are parking on the top floor. You could put... Housing. You may remember we once looked at putting agriculture on the roofs of parkways. Right. And by the way, while we're talking about mixing uses, we talked about the downtown east side before. One of the reasons why I think the problem got worse rather than better is in 2014, Brian Jackson and the council of the day decided they should restrict condominium development in a portion of the downtown east side known as the Oppenheimer district. And I was arguing that they should allow condominiums because you need people, you need a broader mix of people. You just don't want a ghetto. And I, I use that word advisedly, but you don't want a ghetto of low-income people. And the council of the day uh, decided, no, we're not going to allow any condominiums because we don't want to force up the value of the land so that it's not affordable for social housing. Right. It was a terrible mistake. And if anybody's listening to me now, and cares about the downtown east side, we all need to advocate for a broader socioeconomic mix. The irony is when I was doing the Bayshore project, there was a strong argument that we should have low-income housing for families and seniors at Bayshore. And yet when I argue that we should have condominiums in the downtown east side, all of a sudden social mixing isn't such a good idea. Well, this is so, just two thoughts on that. One, I just saw an article that was talking about the city of Vancouver buying up SRO hotels. And I think the cost in the end was like 
close to 400 grand a, a bed. Basically, it was like $381,000 or something, which in terms of like how much higher can you, how, how much higher can the cost go up, right? Uh, just thinking out loud about that. But, but the other uh, thing I just wanted to bring up because it speaks to your point about ghettoizing certain areas of the city, but that eighth and Arbutus project. I'm just wondering because that was, I mean, that that's an example of, you know, trying to spread out social housing throughout throughout the city. I'm just wondering what your take is on that. Uh, we we had a, I did an open house over uh, there a couple of weeks back, and it was a busy open house, and it was and the, but there was a lot of neighbors, and man, that community is angry as far as I can tell. Every person who came through is just up in arms. So I actually did participate in that discussion. And I supported the idea of having uh, that social housing in that location. But what I did not support was a high concentration of formerly homeless people all being brought into that one building. When I was at CMHC, we used to talk a lot about, is there a kind of magical size for a, say, housing co-op or a certain type of development? You know, when is too big too big? And indeed... We used to conclude that once you get much above 60 units of anything, you begin to change the complexion of the building. And so my argument for that particular site was, yes, I don't have a problem necessarily with the scale of the development, but I do have a problem trying to put 100 formerly homeless people all in that one building. The other thing that troubled me, and this is something that troubled me in the 70s when I was in charge of the social housing program, was... Why can't we make social housing projects just look like market rental and condo projects? Why do they always have to look so odd and architecturally designed, in the case of that one, foreboding? I mean, it was an—I have to be careful what I say, although I—by the way, I'm a retired architect now. <laughs> but still, but that building looked too institutional to my mind. And if it just looked like a regular polygon apartment building, it probably— would have generated a bit less uh, opposition. I'm just thinking right now, and, and we've talked a lot about the downtown east side and surrounding areas, and we've talked about increasing crime. And do you think the areas right now that have suffered maybe throughout COVID, you know, I'm thinking Chinatown, Railtown, do you, do you think they'll have their day again? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because the pendulum swings and uh, neighborhoods do change over time. And, uh, I once gave a talk to a home builders group and they gave me a, a little illustration and it had a number of scenes and it showed of a, a house and uh, then somebody put a little addition on the house and then they put a swing in front. But then you could see the house deteriorate and it got very run down and then somebody else came back in and they fixed it up a little bit and then they put a swing in front. And to some degree, that does happen in the city. I mean, at one time, I mean, there's no doubt that some neighborhoods are always, you know, beautiful, Shaughnessy. But there was a time when Shaughnessy was going through a rough period. A lot of those houses were subdivided into rooming houses. There were a lot of buildings that were run down. And then even over time, different things happen. And now I'm pleased to see we're going to allow coach houses. We're going to allow the subdivision of those big houses into four suites or whatever. 
And I think that does happen in a lot of neighborhoods. So, I mean, look at Point Grey. My, my wife was lamenting the fact that Point Grey used to be a beautiful neighborhood, a wonderful prized neighborhood. You go along 10th Avenue now since the Safeway moved out. A lot of the shops are boarded up. That is no longer an attractive neighborhood. Mm -hmm. But in 20 years, it will be a very attractive neighborhood again because some new retail will come in. Uh, Jericho Village, will that Jericho development will proceed. Transit will get closer. So it will have a revival. So there's no doubt that throughout history, neighborhoods get better and they get worse. Some, some always tend to be you know, less attractive than others. But the pendulum does swing, sort of like my stock portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> it maybe is a final question. And, and, and just thinking about, I'm, I've, I'm fascinated by your comment about reminding you of the early 80s, but a, a, a more uh, mild version of it. Uh, what, what do the next uh, one, three, five years uh, in the market look like in your opinion? Um, any thoughts if we could get you to pull out your crystal ball here? I, I just talked about a swinging pendulum, and I hinted at that before to the extent that construction costs have ri risen to the point that projects are going on hold. And then as too many projects go on hold, the construction costs have to come down, and then those projects, eventually they get, they get going again. I think a lot will depend on what happens to interest rates, but to some degree it does happen, does depend on things that are happening outside of here. I must say, I do worry when I read about North Korea and South Korea, and you think, well, does that really impact us? Well, sometimes it does. What happens in China definitely does impact us. And so there are a lot of global things happening. Certainly what happens in the United States impacts us. So we don't have complete control over that. But today, we're taping this on what is the inauguration day or week for most new municipal councils. And so to the extent that municipal governments have control over certain things, there, there is stuff that they can do that is important. Yesterday, on Saturday, I heard former councillor Suzanne Anton in a, doing a radio interview. And she made a couple of very good points. She said, yes, we have to deal with crime. Yes, we have to deal with housing affordability. But we also have to make our cities and municipalities more and more attractive and livable to live in. We have to keep up community centers. I mean, I actually am one of those people who thought it was a travesty that the park board allowed that train in Stanley Park to, to, to deteriorate to the point that it's not going to operate this year. It bothers me that we, the, the wall of the aquatic center was allowed to disintegrate. And, and I just don't understand the priorities of some of the people in government who would allow that to happen. So to all the new politicians, uh, first of all, I hope you'll take advantage of the courses that SFU offers and other universities are offering on learning about planning. But hopefully, most of the municipal governments will commit themselves to making our communities more and more livable because if they don't, I'll be coming back here in two more years encouraging people to move to Lillooet and Trail <laughs> and Merritt and Penticton and a lot of other places where they are focusing much more on trying to create livable communities. Keep your eye on the prize, right? Uh, I feel like sometimes municipal governments start talking about things that are way outside their control and it's like, hey, deal with that wall, right? <laughs> the, the wall of the aquatic center. 
Michael, we have this segment called the Five Wire, Five Lighthearted Questions that we end every show with. Can you stick around for that? Absolutely. The Five Wire is brought to you by Scalina Real Estate. Hey, that sounds familiar. Scalina Real Estate is a full-service real estate company serving Vancouver, offering comprehensive tried and tested buyer and seller systems. With over a decade in the top 10% of realtors in the lower mainland and a perfect five-star Google review, Scalina Real Estate can help with all your real estate needs. We also have an extensive network of the best industry professionals and trades right across the country. There's no reason to not get in touch. Head over to scalinarealestate.com to find out more. So the first question is, uh, I, and I, I still remember your the last book that you recommended, which I think I'm actually By taking. By the way, we've taken the restaurant one out of the, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, because I know you're a big fan of Greek food. <laughs> well, um, one, one book that you'd recommend for our listeners, and I know, and also I'd love to just quickly uh, talk about your book club, because I know you're. Well, I, I'd like to give two books, one for your young listeners and one for your older listeners. Sure. So for the young listeners, uh, Uval Harari, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century is a book that I can highly recommend. Right. Now, that is the same author as... Uh, Sapiens. Yeah. Yeah. Homo Deus. He's a brilliant guy. He even just wrote a children's book that I gave to my granddaughter. But as I started to read it, I thought I probably will get more out of it than she will at the age <laughs> of three. But Harari is a brilliant writer. Right. Now, for your older listeners... The Last Days of Roger Federer, which is an interesting book because it's not actually just about tennis or Roger Federer. It's all about people's last days. When do you, if you're a musician, when do you decide to stop? When you're at the absolute top? Or do you just keep going like Bob Dylan yeah. forever or Leonard <laughs> Cohen forever and ever and the ever? Rolling Stones. And you develop a following of people who don't actually care that much about how you sound. They just want to be able to tell their friends, I saw Dylan. And sure enough, I was in Rotterdam. Uh, no, I was in, uh, in the Netherlands a couple of weeks ago and Dylan was playing. Dylan was playing. And so, but the whole concept of how you think about the last days of your life, if I could use it, put it, that's, right. I'm not putting it very well, but the book does talk about the different ways of uh, deciding when to stop. And now I was joking to some of my colleagues in the real estate business. And I said, we'll probably just keep going until no one hires us anymore because <laughs> we love what we're doing. I mean, I love what I'm doing. And then you'll stop and you'll just start writing about all the things you did do and hopefully share some ideas. So those two books. You'll, you know. the, the Roger Federer, that must be a brand new... The book came out in the spring before Roger Federer announced Actually, his retirement. Interesting. Uh, but he knew that one day he would. The guy who wrote the book happens to be very interested in tennis. So if anybody is interested in tennis, the last day, a Dwyer, Jeff Dwyer is his name. Okay, those are, those are both great. Um, in the last five years, Michael, is there a new belief behavior or habit that has improved your life? Well, I think attitudes towards what you eat. Um, I mean, if my wife's listening to this, she'd say all he eats her is meat and potatoes, fried potatoes. But I'm much more, I would say I have become much more conscious, as I suspect many of the people who are listening to us have, in terms of what you eat. And I mean, I do now actually look at the ingredients on the packages 
of things that I buy. And every once in a while, I do put something back. I, uh, I feel like that is one thing that Vancouver really outperforms on is having healthy options. Uh, and I, I find when we travel, it's, it, that's what we miss. Number one thing is ah, like the food's never quite as good. Um, healthy options, I should say. Yeah. So that's a good one. What music do you have on repeat right now or favorite band? 10CC. Now, most people are saying, I've never even heard of 10CC. 10CC. But the reason I've got it on my, uh, in my car at the moment is because I, as you get older, you start wanting to connect with people from your past. In the 1968-69, I lived in Manchester and hung out with some people who were affiliated with the Hollies and Herman's Hermits. And uh, uh, Graham Gouldman was a songwriter who wrote many of these songs. And uh, I connected with an old girlfriend who, in fact, married Graham Gouldman and then divorced him because he created 10CC, which became an incredibly popular musical group. But I, I'm, stu I'm stuck in the past. Living in the past, Jethro Tull pretty much summarizes my <laughs> musical taste. <laughs> NCC, that is one that, uh, no, I, I do not know that band. Yeah, we'll have to check it out. We'll put a link in the show notes here. Uh, anything that you've been binge watching or a, or a movie recommendation? Uh, film festivals. And... Uh, when I was in Europe, I attended a film architectural design film festival. I think Vancouver's is this coming week. It's coming this week. I came back and I posted on Facebook how disappointing it is that we don't have similar festivals in Vancouver. And somebody said, what are you talking about? We have an annual architecture and design film festival. And in the it will be happening this week. I don't know in... in in uh, November, I don't know when this right. will go to air, right. but it doesn't matter. People can start looking up some of the films that played in these festivals because you can often find them somewhere else. One of the films that I will recommend, and it's only because it's about a very, very good friend of mine, Richard Henricus, the architect who designed a lot of interesting buildings around right. the city, including the building with the tree on top, is one of the uh, people being profiled in this festival. That's right. So, very good. And last question for you uh, today, Michael, and thanks again for your time. Something you have purchased for under $1,500 in the last few years that has had a positive impact on your life? My golf clubs. <laughs> I saw your... Stolen. You, you know what? I was going to say your, tw your tweet about your golf clubs. I saw that. Sounds like the putter. Did you ever get it yeah, back? The putter was... was no, uh, I, uh, that's right. No, I mean, I'm at the stage in life now. I mean, there would have if we had this discussion 40 years ago, I'd be talking about paintings or pieces of sculpture because that's what gave me the greatest joy. But now I, I love, I mean, I was at Splash. I love watching people buy art. I love looking at it. But I've that, that's not that important to me. I don't need any more clothes. Um, I've got a car. Um, but a lot of people, when you get to stage like me, uh, the one thing, though, that if the next time I'm here, it'll probably be my electric bike. Oh, okay. Ah. But you don't have it yet. I don't have it yet. And unfortunately, whenever I speak to people about electric bikes, they always tell me, you know, they're terrific, but you're always worried about it being stolen. And that's a terrible, terrible state of affairs. And hopefully we can do something about that. 
Absolutely. So maybe we'll leave it there, Michael. How can people find out? I, I know you're active on Twitter. That's one place for sure. But how can people find out more about uh, what you're doing? Well, I have a blog. Michael, Just Google Michael Geller's blog. Everyone's, so I do talk about uh, travel and ideas and things if, if anybody's interested. And uh, that's one way of trying to stay in touch. But I'm on Facebook and uh, I enjoy communicating with people. You're, you definitely communicate on Twitter. I enjoy, we enjoy following you, although we just uh, deleted that app this morning, getting off, getting <laughs> off social media. But thanks again for your time. Thanks for inviting me. There you have it, folks. Our discussion with Renaissance man, Michael Geller. Really enjoyed that conversation, Matt. Uh, having him in studio was a real treat. Um, you know, super gracious with his time, and and he's a super busy guy. So well, yeah, yeah really and we we tried to have him on before the election, actually, but I think there was a, a variety of COVID uh, cases that uh, that led to that not happening. But it was so great to uh, to reconnect with Michael, and uh, yeah, great conversation. Always an interesting take on the market, and yeah, just just uh, somebody who has been basically studying the market for 50 plus years, right? And studying the city. Yeah, just a super well-read, well-read guy. And uh, yeah, always insightful. So that was great. What else do we have before we cut for the day? What else do we have? We have VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. This is our website where all things real estate related live. Head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com for things like the live wire. This is our weekly mailer with pre-sale projects. And man, there is some incentives. I've seen some Black Friday sales right now on pre-sales, which uh, with some fairly, uh, fairly big discounts, actually. Uh, but we have... Aren't, yeah. Aren't the sales centers shut down on Friday? That seems like a weird... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> that was that was the, 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 the logistical challenge there. <laughs> How do we have a Black yeah. Friday sale when none of us are open? Right. But I do think they're spending the weekend. We have some really interesting pre-sale offerings there. We have deal of the month. We have the back catalog. There are stats before anyone else, different types of stats, sales ratios you want to see. There's basically no reason you shouldn't be on the live wire. We also have, of course, Adam, private client services. Yeah, Matt, because if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free. It's available at your fingertips. Go to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com slash PCS and sign up for your free account. Uh, somebody will get in touch and set you up. And right now is the time to be monitoring because I'm starting to feel a little bit more, you know, from from afar. From Boosterius, you are starting to feel like we are evening out here. Potentially stay, finding some stability, some footing in a, in a market that felt like it was uh, steeply declining. And now I think what's going to happen, my, my prediction is, we're going to find stability here pretty soon. So if you're a buyer and you've been on the sidelines, now is the time to sign up for PCS and start monitoring the market. Absolutely. One thing is October, I think, signified that. The sales ratios where we're at, my impression is November is going to continue. And they say one month isn't a trend, but we're starting to see a trend here. So you're right. It is potentially a very interesting time to be looking. PCS is your tool that you should be using. And last but not least, Adam, and I can't believe we buried this this deep into uh, the outro for the show. We have been giving out a ton of T-shirts. Yeah, you know, these shirts, it's signifying our real estate team 
through quality. That's that's the service that we give, and that's the T-shirts we provide. So li- listen to this. We've had a few people reach out, stocking stuffers. Oh. Apparently, apparently, we had mentioned stocking stuffers, but just in time for the holiday season, if you want a shirt, all you got to do is follow us at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast, tag us uh, in your favorite episode and share it with your network. And uh, what we'll do is we'll try to get you a shirt and well, uh, well applies last. Here's the thing. We have the Kokomo Studios is upstairs in our, our office, which is kind of a loft space. Downstairs right now, Sonia, it's kind of like uh, Santa's, uh, Santa's what, what is that? A workshop. Sonia workshop. is downstairs. She's got a hat on, a red hat, and she's literally putting T-shirts into envelopes and mailing them out right now. So uh, if you're interested in stocking though. stuffers, this <laughs> is the time. It is so easy and it's basically free. Vancouver Real Estate yeah. Podcast on Instagram. Absolutely. Yeah, check that out. Get in touch, Matt. Uh, and uh, how can people get in touch with you? Anytime. Uh, if you want to talk about that or anything else, 778-847-2854 or Matt at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast.com. But for right now, you're going to get an out of office. So uh, try Matt. Try me or Kokomo line at info at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast.com. Have a great week, everyone. We have, uh, and this is true, we uh, stacked the episodes before you left. And I can say with 100% certainty, we are ending this year with some fantastic content. So stay tuned uh, for the coming weeks. Have a great week. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Mm-hmm.